So let us continue with our long travel through the words and actions of Jesus, which we, from the standpoint of a yoga school of yoga practitioners, which we try to understand as yogis and to see what does that tell us from the standpoint of chakras, energies, laws of the universe, <clears throat> yama and niyama, resonance and all the other things which are for us the spirit of yoga. And um, we had studied last week we have looked into the fundamental episode of transfiguration the transfiguration of Christ <clears throat> which is fundamental which is the probably the greatest referential moment if you want to go back in Akasha and see Jesus see him when he was undergoing the transfiguration and then after that we had a shorter episode where Jesus performed an exorcism of a boy who was possessed and there we saw that the disciples were not able so it's not just a black and white fact that oh I believe in God and I say oh God let this unclean spirit get out of here the disciples did that 125 times and it didn't work and only when Jesus came back Jesus could do it and he was explaining some things and showing and then he was even a bit exasperated saying how long shall I stay with you and put up with you and then it ends strangely with this event put in the same category that on the same occasion at some point Jesus already coming from the mountain Jesus coming from the transfiguration he was told, he was let know more clearly about what was going to happen to him, what his mission was. You can see that in a certain way, even Jesus was not given a full scroll of what was going to happen three years ago. As he goes through it, there is a feedback. And it is possible that even the divine consciousness is changing plans maybe this was supposed to be like that but then Jesus has done more and then things have become like that there's always a feedback with the divine so it is with your yoga practice you do a certain yoga practice and the divine consciousness can be surprised and says oh I didn't expect you to get that far well, since you are getting that far, why don't we make out of your life this instead of that? I had that plan with you, but you have surprised me in a pleasant way. And why don't we upgrade the things a little bit? Like things, you are not a robot. Although there is a destiny, although there is a karma, although prophets have prophesied things hundreds of years in advance of what was going to happen in this humanity, <clears throat> still things are not hammered and nailed and for a spirit like Jesus definitely things are not hammered and nailed so Jesus does and does and then God says mm, why don't we do that then 
Like it was not just a, like a rat in a labyrinth, like a mouse in a labyrinth. You can go from point A to point B and that's the trajectory. No, Jesus is not a mouse in a labyrinth. And therefore there is some ping pong. There is some interaction between him and the divine. Jesus has the divine creativity awakened in him and he is capable of surprising even God. That's why, because if everything would be known in advance, you'll say, well, God knows if I'll reach enlightenment or not in this lifetime. God knows if I'm going to practice four hours of yoga per day or not in this lifetime. No, but God doesn't know. He needs to see it. He needs to see you in the labyrinth. You need to walk through the labyrinth. And because you are a spirit, because you are divine spirit, you can produce surprises. And those are because otherwise the whole universe would be just a mechanical contraption, like a music box, and you just play the same music. I know, like it's boring. The whole interesting point is that some people are not behaving according to the astrological influences and according to the DNA, and the, but there are surprises. That's exactly where it becomes interesting. So you can imagine that Jesus is not a robot. He can produce surprises. And because he produces surprises, then God produces another surprise. Like it's ping and pong. Jesus says ping and God says pong, then pong. And therefore now Jesus needed to touch base. He went and went into the transfiguration. He spoke with Moses and Elijah. And he comes back and says, God told me Pong. No, like things have been updated, upgraded. That's why you will see that after each key moment, Jesus comes and announces another dimension, another thing of his life and mission. And thus, Jesus simply tells them that he is going to Jerusalem and he is going to be assassinated. And the disciples are so paralyzed by this karma, because it's a mixture of karma, God's will, that as I told you last time, they did not understand what it meant, and it says it was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it. And then when Jesus was arrested, everybody was running away like chickens with their throat cut off, Although Jesus told them three months in advance or one year in advance or something, look, be careful, I'm going to Jerusalem, it's going to get bitter. But it's like, if you were warned, why didn't you train, as I was saying last week? Why didn't you make some seminars? Like, what are we going to do when Jesus gets arrested or crucified? Because he said so. Let's prepare for crisis. Let's prepare to go underground. Let's prepare to fight with the... Romans, let's prepare to do this. Or Nobody, everybody was completely unprepared. Although Jesus said it several times, they were unprepared. And he says it was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it, which I made fun of this thing last time, which is so formidable that... They were afraid. Why were they afraid? Like your teacher says, when we go to Jerusalem, they are going to kill me. Then you say, um, 
uh, I, 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 I don't even feel like asking him about that. <clears throat> Why not? It's a very important event. You should be prepared. Well, you know, if somebody tells you, if I would tell you I have visions and I can see that the third world war is coming and that it will be a nuclear war and the air, the water, the food will be fucked up 99% on this planet. Then any one of you who would be intelligent would say, what have you seen in those visions? Is New Zealand going to get away? Like, is the water still clean in New Zealand? So maybe I buy a bit of land in New Zealand and prepare for the Third World War. Or some like, wouldn't you ask some questions of practical relevance? Like, how many years will this? Because I can get there is some special Greek bread which is dry, like pemmican or something. I can take some Greek bread. 15 sacks of it, which will be enough for three years. Will three years enough of dry bread be enough to make me go over the crisis of radioactive pollution? Or should I get food for only six months because that would... No, like any intelligent person would ask if they would be announced that, look, something is going to happen. No? But funnily, the disciples were so paralyzed by this divine influence that they were hiding like ostriches. The ostrich doesn't really do that. It's a legend, I hope you know, that the ostriches don't really put their head in the sand. But it remained like a paradigm that you are hiding like an ostrich in the sand, that the ostrich theoretically was supposed to plug its head into the sand and believe absurdly that nobody sees it because it cannot see anybody. No, Even if it's not true, the here... The disciples, the apostles of Jesus, they practice the policy of the ostrich. Like Jesus tells them. And I have no doubt that Jesus would have talked about it. That even Jesus could have said, you know, maybe if you talk to me, maybe I'll feel better about it. Maybe I'll know something. Anyway, that is, I cannot see any reason while Jesus would speak obliquely and cryptically and then be happy that nobody asked me about it. Then why did he speak about it if nobody asked him about it? He could have kept it like a total surprise anyway. But he somehow was tickling them. He was saying, you know, something terrible is coming. And instead of them going and saying, what, what, what is coming? Can you give us details? No. They shut up. They shut up being, it says here, they were afraid to ask him about it. What would have Jesus done if they asked him about it? Would have beaten the shit out of them or what, you know? You shouldn't ask me about this thing. I was even wrong to tell you this thing. I shouldn't have told it. Of course, if he told it, it meant he was expecting a reaction. But the reaction never came. The disciples were dead in this way. An argument, now I'm continuing with the new things of today. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. So, as you can see, even the disciples, remember the disciples of Jesus, it was a very strange policy that Jesus had with them. The disciples of Ramakrishna were doing meditation. The disciples of Yogananda, the disciples of Shivananda, they were doing yoga practice. 
And the master was very happy to know that my disciples are going in their room, in their cell, and there they give themselves to spiritual practice. And when they come back every morning, I look at them and then see how much their Sahasrara is shining. See how much spiritual progress I can see on them. But in the case of Jesus, we have never been told in any of the texts of that time that Jesus was making them do any practice. Jesus was performing miracle after miracle and they were like, whoa, so it's possible. And then Jesus in the winter told them, go to the villages and you do it in my name. Do it in my name and then come back, we meet in March again or something. Like, this was the only practice which they did to believe in Jesus, to see him doing things and to follow in his footsteps. It was almost like a sort of neuro-linguistic programming. In neuro-linguistic programming, this is called modeling. Like these people were modeling Jesus. Jesus said, all of you please do like me. What you see me do, you also try to do. And sometimes it didn't work. They said, ah, we tried to chase that demon, but it didn't go. Like we are modeling, but we are 70% of your capacity. Not 100% at your capacity. But it's still just... So this was their practice. Their practice was that Jesus was like an ideal. Look at me, be like me, copy me. I'm the perfect archetype. And people, the disciples, were trying to copy him. I'm sure that Jesus, in an indirect way, not like in an NLP seminar, was encouraging them to do, was telling them things by which they, he told them, look, you can also do. Now I'm touching you on your forehead, and for five days you can do. And that can be just placebo. It can be just pure belief. I'm telling you that you can do, and you believe, and because you believe, it happens. And then you actually do it. So it's a placebo, but it's not a placebo. It's a placebo which actually creates the actual state of belief. So Jesus is working very much in this way. But being like this, you can say, well, Jesus is a great master, among others, of Anahata Chakra. But not all the disciples had a big Anahata Chakra. Like, for example, what we read about Peter, we see that Peter was more a Manipuristic type. I personally believe that maybe Peter was astrologically an Arius. So maybe he had a good Manipura, maybe he had a good Ajna. But Peter is not really famous in his youth, in these stories, for his Anahata. So the disciples, Jesus didn't give them Cobra. He said, every one of you, wherever we stop in the evening, you have to do one hour of Cobra every day. Because I want you to be Heart Chakra Apostles. No, he knew that the Heart Chakra will come to them after enlightenment and by being with him for three years, that somehow the heart chakra will come by this modeling. But that means that before they reach that point, the apostles were not always very pure. Again, not like today. Today when we say that there came somebody to Agama and did half a year of yoga and they were not very pure. That's, uh, that means something very different than what it meant 2,000 years ago in Palestine. 
These people were living with God. They saw him bringing people out of the dead. He walked on water, healed the blind, and so on. Of course, these people had a faith in God, which probably surpasses anybody in the 20th century, except the great masters of yoga or the great spiritual beings. So, of course, relatively in those days, in a simple culture with a simple mind living with Jesus, they probably were quite pure. Like you can see, you know, look in the Hollywood movies. Study the Hollywood movies from 1900 until today. You will see that even in 1960s, a few movies which were really, really considered to be rude, 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 like uh, The French Connection with Gene Hackman and this kind of movies, there you hear an, an actor saying, fuck. In the 1950s, there is not a single fuck in any movie. In the 1940s, even less so. Like, even in the 50 years, you can see how people became foul-mouthed and dirty and impure. And this, like, people were not saying, if people would have spoken like this, you know, they would have seen it in the movies. It would appear in books. But when you read literature written in the 1930s by Agatha Christie or something like this, there is no such thing. Later, it appears. So if such a decadence has happened in only just a hundred years or sixty years, imagine how people were at the time of Jesus, where the language and other things were very puritanic and the behavior and this. So the disciples were relatively clean compared with what is today. Now, I have seen people introduced to great gurus, like to Swami Krishnananda, the follower of uh, um, Swami Shivananda, you know, he was the leader of the Divine Life Society, you know. And there comes some uh, Jewish tourist, you know, some Jewish traveler in the 1990s, and goes there and people say, that's Swami Krishnananda, and they say, hi, hi, how are you? You talk like this, and nobody in the 1950s would have talked like this to any Swami or Sadhu from India, you know. There comes a marijuana fiend from Israel and says, Hi, how are you? Krishna, you're Krishnananda. Like really cheeky, really speaking impolitely, really full, without any decency or whatever, you know. So these things have happened in just a hundred years, in just 50 years. Imagine where we come from hundred years ago, two hundred years. 300 years ago, not to mention at the time of Jesus. So, of course, the disciples were relatively clean. Like today, these people, if one of them would be here and behave, you'd think that this is some mama's boy who lived with his mother until he was 40 years old and who doesn't say any curse word or any, you know, like they would be like, who, you know, do such people exist? Still, because they didn't do spiritual practice, because the method of Jesus was something very different, because of that, they of course had a lot of Manipura, and they had still some impurities, like they were human beings. They were not people from Shambhala. They were not purified human beings. 
they were more or less normal human beings, even if the human beings from 2000 years ago were definitely more pure than the human beings who live in this century right now. And therefore, they start arguing, who will be the boss? Like because Jesus tells them that he's going to die. And then he says, when he dies, who's going to be in charge? They do all the time. Even in Agama, I've seen people arguing if they are going to do some Kashmir Shaib study group or something, who's going to be in charge? I told them, Shiva, who's going to be in charge? Shiva is in charge of everything. You know, like, what the to what the heck are you talking about? No, everybody is looking for human benefits sorts of human advantages, you know. And even the apostles did that 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, not so difficult. It's not like Jesus had to exert some high-level clairvoyance. Sometimes you see it. You see it. I have been with different yoga teachers, and there was a guy who was the preferati, like the preferred cardinals to become pope when they make new pope elections. Some of one or two of them are called the preferati, which means the preferred ones, the ones who most probably will become cardinal pope in the next one. And the ones who are preferati, they had special chairs fixed for them by some brown nosers. There were some people kissing ass in the hole, no? Who always said, yeah, this is for Guruji and this is for Walter. No, they were already kissing the ass of Walter because Walter was looking like he's going to be the next boss. And therefore, and this I've seen it that people, uh, you know, start giving to themselves a certain importance. No, like, what is the importance? You came to a guru to reach samadhi. You came to a guru to practice to open your crown chakra to become free like Shiva. And then you can as well turn your back and go and never be seen again. Dance like Shiva on the whole planet, you know? Like, nobody says that you are coming to a guru, that you attend the Bihar school of yoga or something, thinking that you are going to get some vested benefits from it. That's not, not why you attend the school of yoga. But people in every school of yoga, everywhere, they build it. There is a story which Osho Rajneesh says in one of his many discourses with a Zen monastery where the teacher of the Zen monastery gives a questionnaire. He says, my follower is the one who gives the right answer to this question. Some of these crazy Zen questions. And everybody forwards the question and most people secretly hope that they will be the next sensei, the next Roshi or whatever these gurus of the Zen environment are called. No? And there was one who everybody knew this is the champion, like this is the number one in the monastery. And uh, the guru reads all the answers, including the answer of the with loud voice, including the answer of this guy, and he says, well, no, you didn't quite get it. And everybody is disappointed, but anyway, it has been said that this guy is probably not going to be the next leader of the monastery because the master said, I'll be dead soon, so I will designate a successor. In the night, 
the master comes and knocks at the door of this guy. And the master says, of course you got it right. We both know that. But I did not want to say it with loud voice, because I know that these people envy you, and they are going to murder you. Like there were people in a Zen monastery for which the desire to be the next boss of the monastery was so big that they were ready to assassinate the most valuable disciple in the whole monastery. They didn't care that this guy was close to God. They cared that they have to take over. It's exactly the same. The disciples had the same disease. It's happening everywhere. People come to spiritual institutions and this, and they want to make a business out of it. They want to get something out of it while they are there just to get the spiritual benefit, which is huge already, and then live their lives. And if the guru of the ashram says, please, can you help me and replace me when I'll be gone? Sure, that's a karma yoga. That's something to do, but it doesn't mean that people are going to a monastery just because, or to an ashram, or to a school to take over. So, <clears throat> that's why Jesus knew. You don't have to be a clairvoyant to know that there are many games. You know, in Romania we even have a proverb which says, all the devils have run to the monastery. Like the monks and nuns who live in monasteries, they are more tortured by diabolic things than the people who live in the city. Because the people who live in the city, they don't disturb the demons and don't, they don't present any threat of changing the history of the community in the next 100 years. But the people who do spirituality, they are the ones who are going to become the next Peter and Paul. And the demons are really much against those. And they leave the others alone because the others are already gone. They smoke, they drink, they eat meat, they lose their sexual energy. They are full of egoism and avarice and this. What should the demon do in town when they are already fucked up? But those in the monastery, they try to become pure. And those one, you have to trample on them really hard to try to stop them. Because those are the actual ones who can cause trouble from the standpoint of the dark side of the force. And that's why, in, even in folklore, after 2000 years of Christianity in Romania, the peasants have put it as a proverb. They said, all the devils have run to the monastery. Like, in the monastery you are going to encounter people more demonized and more tempted by the dark side than outside. Outside, they are not too bright, but not too dark. But in this environment, where there is one which is very high, near him there is one which has gone with his soul, has sold his soul to the devil. Because of this law of balance, that always there has to be a compensation. No? Exactly like you see in movies like The Name of the Rose, this old Sean Connery movie, you know, where there are people who live in monasteries and this and they are really, really demonic. The temptation is much bigger in this environment. And of course Jesus knows his own disciples are being tempted and one of them is that everybody wants to be the boss. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and then you stand beside him like he wanted to give an example 
because children are archetypally considered to be examples of purity. And in a certain way, they are. Of course, a child that in his previous life has been Genghis Khan probably has a very horrible manipura, even at the age of five. But, uh, you know, let's not go there too much. Let's simply say that children can be considered an example of purity. And he said to them, and he starts very obliquely, he starts with a parable, which is very difficult. He says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. And you don't connect like, okay, what, what has that got to do with who is the boss? Because he simply says, I come in the name of someone, and that someone is the Father, is God. And I can send this child in my name, like the apostles have been the whole winter, to the villages of Judea. No, and he says, whoever, if I send this child and he comes, he says, I come in the name of Jesus, then if you welcome him, it's like you welcome me. Like, first of all, he said, he wants to say, you want to become bosses, but in the name of whom are you coming? Now it's just your ego speaking in you. you. None of you is saying which one of us is going to represent Jesus best. In which, in whom of us, Jesus will be present most. No, they don't ask that. They simply said which one of them will be the greatest. They wanted this thing, which yoga speaks so much again, you know, name and fame and all this, you know, that you spend your life just because you want to have social greatness of some sort. And he concludes, and here you can see what he was meaning to the whole thing. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. He says, whoever welcomes this little child. This little child is the least, right? In their community, their, that little child was not even, like nobody would have said, this little child is going to be the greatest among us. Because that little child was not even a disciple of Jesus, was not even one of the apostles. That little child happened to be there. Probably it was one of the children of the people who were uh, visiting Jesus, who were around Jesus. So he took him just like an example, like who is this little child from the standpoint of our own little community? Nobody. But he says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. Therefore, he says, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. That's his famous statement from other, the last shall be the first, and the first shall be the last. Like this, we have seen recently a movie with the life of Dogen, the founder of Zen Buddhism in Japan, brought it from China to Japan. And uh, Dogen considered there was a tradition, he learned it in China, but he did the same in Japan, that perhaps the most advanced spiritual practitioner in the whole Zen monastery is the cook. The cook. The cook meditates the least because he has to 
boil rice everybody meditates eight hours per day the cook meditates six because he has karma yoga in the kitchen no and still the cook is often becoming the enlightened master of it precisely because he is the last and because he is the last he is the most humble he says i i, I probably will never be one of the front because i'm the cook i'm just a lowly cook no, the cook is such a materialistic thing and there is a guy who takes care of our stomachs. It's like somebody who is wiping my ass clean, you know, it's like, it's not so important. It's just one of the low things. The lowly cook, Dogen even wrote a book, which is called the Handbook for the Cook. Knowing which like, it was like his preferred disciple was the cook, you know, because he was not famous. People didn't say, have you seen how much the cook is meditating? No, there is always an arrogant one who seems to meditate more and brags about it. That's the problem, not that they meditate. The problem is that they brag about it. No. And then the cook is the most humble because he says, I, my practice is not par with everybody else's practice. And usually the cook is the one who reaches nirvana and the others stay with their egoism. So Jesus is bringing something very paradoxical, which as you can see, if it's valid in Zen environments, it's not only something on Anahata. You can say here that Jesus speaks about humbleness in Anahata, but it works in a Zen monastery as well. And their practice is a practice on Manipura, centered around Manipura. So it's not about Anahata or Manipura. It's a general principle in spiritual practice that when somebody is more invisible and discreet, usually that's the kind of person who receives more grace. It's very important to meditate. And he says, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Uh, that is one of the medieval philosophers, of course, relying heavily on the Christian mysticism, he said it under another form. He said, humbleness precedes glory. Like even Jesus was first humiliated, beaten, mocked, spat at, then crucified. And even when he was crucified, the Manipuristic assholes around him said, if you are really the son of God, why don't you fly off this cross? Which he could have done actually temptation to just put an end to it or to give a lesson must have been absolutely huge and Jesus did not do it so he was humble and then he was resurrected so suddenly it was 180 degrees suddenly the man who was crucified between two thieves became God confirmed God precedes glory. That's why you should all be ready to take humility. It's not wrong. Humility could be a very good sign. When you are humiliated, many good things may happen. That's why there is always another perspective to things if you believe in the providence, if you believe in right now, Agama is being humiliated. Maybe it's a great sign. Could be a great going, we don't try to fall into the temptation. 
of it. The way it is, we have to follow our heart. We have to follow our spiritual ideals. And then, it doesn't say here, but it's the same topic. John, the famous John, John the Apostle, he interferes and he says, Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. Somebody who was not one of the apostles of Jesus, saw Jesus, believed in Jesus, and he said, if Jesus is so big and other people do things in his name, I can as well. And he was going around and saying, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And sometimes he was succeeding, maybe all the time, we don't know. But he was having success. And John is puzzled because he said, I think only we have a license. You gave us a badge that we are the sheriff. We are the town marshal. We have a badge which says that we are the apostles of Jesus. And then there is that guy who is not contributing, who is not paying his due. He doesn't cook rice together with us or whatever they were doing. But he's doing healing work in your name. And he's not even your disciple. Like it's unfair. And therefore, he says, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. See the clan, the gang. This is Alibaba's team. We are Alibaba and the 40 thieves. And who is in the team of Alibaba can have a badge which says, I am one of the chums of Alibaba. But if you are not, you shouldn't do what we do. While Jesus, on the contrary, says, if you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. No, and like, and John is provoked, like, how far will this go? We saw a man who was driving demons in your name. Realize how widespread this thing with the demons are. Every time when I talk about demons, especially if I go a bit concrete, and I say some people are demonized, people think I'm becoming as nasty as the Spanish Inquisition or something like this. But at the time of Jesus and Jesus himself, it's quite obvious that there is a lot of demonic influence to take out. And believe me, in 2000 years it hasn't become less. In 2000 years it's become more, much more. So he says, how far now you are telling us that you are not going to say you are the boss or he who is the least of you. Maybe this child, you know, is coming with humbleness and if you receive him in my name, you receive God and all that. And then John wants to verify, you know, he wants to say, Master, we saw even a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Like he doesn't have your warrant. But Jesus says, yes. He does in spirit. And Jesus says, therefore, do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. For Jesus, it's always, he said it in so many ways. There is no midpoint. There is no third category. For example, in the famous... I think it, it's written by Jean-Paul Sartre after Bulgakov's novel, which is called something like The Master and Margaret or something, or I, I forgot anyway, something 
about uh, a, a mixture between Jesus and Faust of Goethe. And I think the author of this play, it's a theater play, I think it was Jean Paul Sartre himself. Or if not, maybe Bulgakov or something. May, I, I, I didn't quite follow this because I know that there was a powerful existentialistic influence in this which was coming from Jean-Paul Sartre. So it was directly Sartre or indirectly Sartre into it. And the uh, hero in this is a guy, you know, and he is a military officer or something. And you don't, you never know if he's a religious person or if he's a Satanist. Because he's behaving like a maniodepressive, schizophrenic, split personality type of person. No? And in the end, somebody asks him, Goethe, what are you? What are you with? And he says, I'm neither with God nor against God. I believe in man. This being, of course, the existentialistic doctrine which is so much present in all the universities of Europe and North America, which is called humanism. Ah, you know, forget about Jesus and the devil. This is what your grandmother believed in. Uh, we have to believe in man. It starts all with the French Revolution. At the French Revolution, Voltaire and Robespierre and all, they believed in man. Man is the measure of all things. Friends, this is called Luciferianism. It's a form of Satanism. Humanism is Luciferianism because it means man can do everything without caring about God. Like God is not important. You can take God out of the equation. The only thing which matters is man. And this is called humanism. The doctrine of believing in the human being. Humanism is just a form of Satanism created by the Freemasons and the Illuminati in the 18th century because they could not fight directly against the church because the church was still very powerful in the 18th century. And then they started creating divergent doctrines so as to disperse the attention and the efforts. And one of them was, you know what, don't accuse me that the, the Spanish Inquisition has been burning people at stake until a hundred years ago, until 1750 or whatever. Uh, you know what, we want to sidestep. We are not against the Catholic Church. We are not worshippers of Satan. We are not this. But we are neither very hot religiously. No, will you please excuse me if I'm not so much, you know. I'm neither. I, on the contrary, I believe in something new. I believe in humanism. I believe in the human being. Let's do everything for the human. And in the beginning, it sounds beautiful. It's like you are going to promote life, like you are going to support the human being in the pursuit of happiness, like the Constitution of the United States is half of it, this the same thing, you know, it's the same Freemasonic influence in their thinking and so on. And it's like, no, no, we're not against God, but we are also not very hot about God. Man, man is the measure of all things. This philosophy is actually, in terms of absolute divine philosophy, is Luciferianism. Because that's the heresy of Lucifer. Lucifer says, you don't need God. You can be great by yourself. Why should you become great by God? 
You can be great by yourself. This is not the full explanation. You may even believe that Buddha is Luciferian in this way. But Buddha is not because Buddha speaks about Mara, the demon, who tried to stop him. Buddha speaks about the celestial forces that supported him. Buddha implicitly talks about something like Shambhala, the Buddhas of the past, present and future, the great spiritual influences. So Buddha doesn't say we human beings all alone. Buddha is praising very much the individual effort, but Buddha is never describing the individual effort without grace. And that's exactly the whole point. While the so-called discipline of humanism is nothing else but man without God and without the devil. And Jesus in this paragraph as well as in other places, he says it clearly. Those people who imagine that there is a third position in the universe, exception made of against God or for God, like people say, no, in this life, you know, I think I'm going to stand neutral. Then you are against God. There is no neutrality. You cannot be in the middle position. The middle position is unstable and mathematically equal to zero. It's like a mathematical line. It has the breadth of zero. You cannot stand, you have not support. As soon as somebody puts you near the top, you slide on the left slope or on the right slope. There is no place in the middle. That seesaw cannot stay 50-50. It has to have one arm down. There is no midpoint. And therefore, Jesus here says it in the opposite way. He says, whoever is do not stop him because somebody says in the name of Jesus I want to say something beautiful or to do something beautiful for whoever is not against you is for you like again there is no either he is against you or if not you say yeah, but he was not clearly on our side it doesn't matter if he is not against then there is no third position there is no neutral position in the middle Remember for yourself. There are people who say, for 10 years I believe in this shit of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati with evolution, evolve, choose evolution. I tried and then tried and then I said, you know what, I'm going to take a break for two years. There's no break. If you don't go up, you go down. There is no midpoint. It's exactly like you're climbing on a mountain and there is ice and then you stop. What's happening is that you are actually sliding down the slope, slowly, slowly. There is no stop. You cannot say, I will stop my evolution for three years because I'm not capable to deal with it. If you don't do it, then it's done the other way around. You are with or against. It's as simple as that. Jesus has this talent. As you can see, Jesus may be one of the greatest, if not the greatest spirit incarnated on earth, at least in the recent history. But one thing is for sure, Jesus does not want to teach monistically. Jesus is always teaching dualistically. He simply says you should know what you choose. You choose the light or you choose the darkness. There is no midpoint, there is no neutrality in this. Don't lie to yourself telling right now I'm doing not. No, you are not. 
Then you say, okay, so what should I do? Maybe I should do five minutes of mantras every morning. Every morning I go Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah. Good, good. You are one millimeter on the side of God. One millimeter. But it's enough. You are on that side. You are not across the line. You have to put one gram on this plate of the scales so that this plate is heavier than this plate. That's good enough. Because you are across the line. Nobody stands on the line. You are either on this side of the line or on that side of the line. Thus, <clears throat> if St. Jesus says, I didn't license that person to do things in my name, but he's not against us. There are people who have taken things from Agama, like they learned Tantra in Agama or they learned something in Agama. And I hear from some people, you know, that that person is doing a workshop in Australia or something, and they do not forget to mention that they learned this thing from you in Agam. Okay. I feel comfortable. It doesn't I don't have ever the feeling that they stole something from me because they learned from me, and I didn't give them permission, but now I hear that they are doing something. As long as that they do it in my name that little thing. If they would not do it in my name, because if you mention the name, you do it, we say, this is something which I learned from Jesus. By reading the Gospels, I've learned this from Jesus, and I'm giving it to you. Then you speak in the name of Jesus, and Jesus accepts you. But if you don't, if you fail to mention, then it's something completely different. And this is a very important argument for you to think how am I going to live my life from a spiritual standpoint what did I learn in whose name I act because as long as you have not become Buddha yourself you always act in somebody's name you say I am a Yogananda fan for me Yogananda is the thing you know Yogananda I read the book of Yogananda 30 years ago my heart is with Yogananda. As Yogananda said so very well in his book, Sri Yukteswar did this and that. Great. You are acting in the name of Yogananda. And Yogananda is happy if you do that. Provided that you do it okay. Like you don't go and say, I'm teaching you yoga in the name of Yogananda and then you steal everybody's wallet. Then you are dishonoring Yogananda. People say, well, we thought you came really in the name of Yogananda and now we see that you made a fool of yourself you are actually a thief and you try to take advantage on us <coughs> so of course you can spoil your reputation and expose yourself but if you do things to the best of your ability like this man there was men driving out demons in your name obviously he was doing his best and they tried to stop him because they were fanatics and Jesus says, don't be fanatics. You know, you are fanatics because you want to take my place. You are wondering who is the boss when I'll be dead. No? You already have built up an institution. For you, that's what matters. Who's going to be in charge? Who will reap the benefits? Who will uh, decide upon the money? Who will do this? Who will do that? So, uh, he says, whoever is not against you is for you. Things have to be clear. And the story continues. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, 
says the author. So now we are close to the bitter third of events. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Israel is a relatively small land. Even if you go on foot, 10 kilometers per day, you know, you take it really easy. In 10 days, you will be to Jerusalem or 12 days or something. You know, like it cannot be too far from Jerusalem. So we are talking about the time coming close. Jesus then is set out for Jerusalem. You can only imagine what was in his heart if he was on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and they told him you are meant to do something very big. Almost nobody did like what you are going to do. But you are going to die badly. And it's going to be better like prepare for three days of hell. Jesus nevertheless set out and resolutely for like hell. He is a vira. He is going for it. Now it's like shock. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. If you don't know Jewish history, you won't understand this one because some the Samaritans were not Jewish. The Samaritans were what the Jews called Gentiles. They were different tribes in the Middle East, Gents, Gentiles, and the people belonging to those tribes were called generally Gentiles and they, it means they were non-Jewish. And the there was a city between where they were in Jerusalem, a Samaritan city, and Jesus said, tonight we are staying in your village. And guess what? The people were so idiotic, they may have, must have heard about this Jesus, but now Jesus was uh, like an Orthodox Jew, you know. He was going to Jerusalem, the Passover was coming. And therefore people said, yeah, yeah, you see this Jesus, he's talking and uh, he speaks against the priests and this. But when it comes to the Passover, he goes obediently to Jerusalem like every other Jew. You know, he is no better than... Uh, they were irritated by the fact that although he was how he was, Nevertheless, at the same time, in some respects, he was also aligning himself with the Jewish religion. And this, the people were irritated by this, especially the Samaritans who were living just near the Jews, and the Jews were looking down on them like these are the non-believers. We are the chosen ones, and these guys are the dirt of the earth, Gentiles, and so on. They had a very, very, until today, some Jewish lineages, they have a super racistic and super discriminatory orientation towards these guys who are not Jews, especially the Gentiles, the different tribes in the area. And, uh, and of course, the Gentiles probably had their own Manipura. And when the Jews were giving them the finger, they felt like, okay, you also take the finger. And you know, like, you are not better than us. You just imagine that you are better than us. You just think you are better than us. But we are also human beings who have a relationship with our God in our way. And the fact that you just rub it in our face that your religion is supposed to be better than ours, that is only just causing irritation and all that. So the people, see, there were people in that geographical area, which is not very big. Remember, everybody must have known him by now. 
It looks like this is the third year of the mission of Jesus, the final year. And therefore Jesus had been around for three seasons. They must have known him when he was raising dead and walking on water. You know? Like who hadn't heard about Jesus in the stories which people were telling to each other in the evening in their villages. So therefore they, and still when they heard, yeah, now Jesus is doing the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, okay, we don't like him. Uh, this week we don't like him because this week he just plays to be some obedient Orthodox Jew and he can fuck himself. He can just go, but not through our village. We are not interested. Like the, the ice was very thin. The balance was very thin. Jesus may have been sympathized when he healed somebody who was a Samaritan. And Jesus, if you remember, there is a parable of the Samaritan woman. That the Samaritan woman took a Jewish guy, felt him who was uh, wounded, and she put oil on his wounds and washed his wounds and took care of him. And Jesus said, see, this woman who is a Samaritan, she is more holy than all of you because she actually did the good deeds in front of God and all of that. So Jesus was himself trying to break this wall between Jews, non-Jews. He was becoming friendly to the Romans even, who were the tyrants, the oppressor of that nation in that century. Jesus was trying to build bridges all the time. And these people, this week, in this, they didn't like him. They simply said, no, no, now you are too much of a Jewish Orthodox. Uh, uh, stay out of our village. You are a nice guy. You are interesting sometimes. But right now, no. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call the fire down from heaven to destroy them? Jewish Manipura, you know, it's like, let's have some revenge here, you know. It's like these people dared not to receive you. It's like we could uh, take some revenge. Now they become bold. These little puppies who don't know pretty much anything about religion. And Jesus took them from being fishermen and most of them illiterate. Now they are getting cheeky. No, they have been with Jesus for two summers. And they say, shouldn't we pray for fire to come out of heaven? Like they think they can call upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, they are, now they are the disciples of Jesus. And hey, people should respect us. And uh, it's about them. But they project it on Jesus. They say, because they don't want you in their village. Shouldn't we pray for some little fire? Jesus told them, remember when he sent them to the villages, he said, if people in a certain village, they don't want you, you should shake the dust of your shoes and turn your back onto that village. And one day, when the day of the final judgment will come, that village will have a very bad karma because it rejected the disciples of Jesus. So the disciples have now become, they are over-auctioning, you know. They are going in overdrive, like that is what you told us. Now look, these people, we go to Jerusalem and these people don't want to host you. Shouldn't we pray for some fire? This is how religious fanaticism appears. Even the disciples, because they were not enlightened, they want some revenge, they want some quick retribution. Some signs should be showed up. 
quickly. No? Somebody is uh, smearing Agama. I would like some quick retribution for them, you know, if the people who write on internet would all of them fall down and break both their legs, wouldn't that be a divine sign that Agama is right and they are wrong? It's exactly the same. I want some fire from heaven to come and confirm. Because right now Jesus is a bit humiliated. Even Jesus when he is in a sort of glory. Jesus is in a good time of his mission. And now and then there are people who still give him the finger. They say, yeah, yeah, you can be that famous prophet that we heard about. But we don't like to. Don't come to our village. Well, you will not receive bread and uh, fish or whatever. You will not receive food in our village. You will not receive housing. We don't like it. Go somewhere else. And the disciples immediately, now they feel like they are the cardinals and the pope. Who dares to go against our little religion here? We are with God. And therefore we should kind of inflict some punishment. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. Like Jesus turned and said, what nonsense are you talking about? Like, is it up to you to ask for fire from heaven? And you know, when it's just your ego that is has been offended. And actually it's been my ego that has been offended. And you indirectly, and you try to put it on my shoulder. Like because I have been offended, uh, shouldn't you do something terrible in my name? Jesus rebuked them. But for example, when Jesus was arrested, none of them stood up to tell the truth. To say, it's not right. You have arrested the wrong man. This man has been, we have been with him for the last three years. This man did not do anything wrong. If you want, we can come and witness. We can bear testimony to what we have seen with this man for the last two years. There was not one of them. Not one of them was in front of the high priest. Not one of them was in front of Pontius Pilate. When Jesus was evaluated, suddenly they were all disappearing. But when they went, when they were dealing with the village of Samaritans, they wanted to bring some fire from heaven for those jerks. When they should have had the courage to stand, they didn't stand, they ran away. And then when they were a gang, uh, they said, maybe our gang does not have weapons. But we can call fire from heaven. We've been with Jesus for two years and we have learned to pray to the celestial forces. I'm sure Jesus must have taught them things about angels, archangels, the nine classes of divine entities finishing with the cherubim and the seraphim and other such things. Like there must have been some further, deeper instruction which these people have received and, and they were ready to use it. You know, Now they wanted some retribution. When they were feeling strong, like cowards, and when it was the real time to show character, then everybody disappeared. So, this is very illustrative about the human nature and the fact how people constantly do not understand Jesus. As you can see, Jesus constantly hesitated. Oh, ye of little faith, how long shall I be with you? What the heck are you saying? 
Do not stop this man who was because if he's not against you, he is with you. What the heck are you saying? We rebuke them. What the heck are you saying to call fire on a poor Samaritan village? Like, what's their fault that they are Samaritan and they have another religion? Now you want to punish them because they don't respect me? But I am a Jewish guy, you know. Of course, they don't respect many other Jewish people. What do you want, you know? Like, he, he unmasks constantly this thing that as long as the human being has a strong ego, which is stronger than the Supreme Self, the ego constantly tries to take decisions. And those decisions are egoistic decisions. They are not enlightened decisions. So that's why Jesus is like constantly misunderstood. Then Peter and Paul got beaten, tortured, persecuted, eventually assassinated and so on. And Paul says, since that day when Jesus appeared to me, it is not I, but Christ Jesus who lives in me. He simply says, Jesus moves in my body and he takes decisions for me. Whatever I decide, I decide inspired by Jesus, not by my ego anymore. Here the disciples were not enlightened and they were still inspired by the ego. This is how all the religions made it. Christianity when became strong and when it became ruled by unenlightened people, bishops, popes, whatever they were, then it started crucifying people, killing, burning, doing, punishing them because they did not believe in Jesus. If you didn't believe in Jesus in medieval Europe, you were a heretic and you deserved to burn at stake. Maybe I'm a Samaritan. I believe in the Samaritan. Let me be a Samaritan. You know, I'm not obliged to be a Christian or a Jew or a Druze or a Buddhist or anything. Let me be who I am and live out my Dharma. Ah, the fact that you can come and talk to me and say, look, you are uh, coming from a shamanistic religion and your shamanistic animistic religion is totally inferior when compared to Jesus or to Buddha. So I think you should upgrade. You should come to a religious feeling which is more monotheistic and more pure and more metaphysical. Then I can give advice if advice is asked of me. What do you think about it? Well, honestly, if you ask about it, I think you could do better. And I'm ready to help you to do better. But me to declare that that person is, has to be burned at stake because they don't believe in the same way in God in which I believe, it's absurd. It shows a very dirty Manipura. Even the Mongols of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan and his sons for centuries, the Mongol Empire, which was one of the biggest, if not the biggest the world has seen, they were allowing all the religions to live in the capital of Genghis Khan. Because they said all the religions in one way or another they come from heaven. There are ways in which the divine consciousness has revealed itself to people from this country and to people from that country. Therefore why should we pit one against the other? As long as they don't break the law and as long as they pay their taxes faithfully they can cultivate any religion they want. The Genghis Khan Mongol Empire was one of the most liberal empire from the standpoint of the religion. When the Christians came to Rome, 
the Romans got pissed off that why don't these people worship Jupiter like we do? They don't want to worship Jupiter, you know, that's the, they worship Jesus. They think Jesus is much better than Jupiter and this, they couldn't take it. They killed uh, thousands and tens of thousands of people because they were not worshipping the Roman God. Why is that pissing you off? You know, like, why somebody calls God Allah and somebody calls God Jehovah? What's your problem about it? And somebody calls God Shiva, Bhairava. What's your problem about it? The tree shall be known by its fruits. That's where you should see it, the fruits. <clears throat> Therefore, this is a typical thing that you can see in all these little events that Jesus is fighting with this Jewish Manipura of his disciples, that they are egoistic people still. They will not be egoistic after a while, but right now still they are in the phase where they build up and they are so filled up of rubbish. Who's going to be the biggest when you are gone? If say you die, who's going to be the biggest? Does that matter? In the end, you know that Jesus himself, he washed their feet. Which was like a complete shock. So we continue. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. We have these people. I was making fun last Thursday about this. That we had an Arius student in 2006 or 7. We had an Arius student who said, Guys, you have eight years of courses in Agama. Can I pay in advance for eight years? All, all the people, like, you know, when I discovered this, he was intelligent. He had this Ajna of the Arius. And he said, This thing. I will not find anything better. Even but he had been seeing Dalai Lama. He had been he said nothing compares. Agama is the diamond, Agama is the gold. Okay, I'll pay for all your courses because I'm sure I'll, six months after I never saw him again. It just took six months for the Aryans to get bored and for his ego to take him somewhere else. And that's the kind of guy, that's the energy. This guy meets with Jesus, he doesn't even really know. Maybe Jesus in private is an asshole. Maybe Jesus in private is very nagging. And with his disciples, when they are alone in the evening, he goes and says, man, you stink. Man, you don't have faith. Look at you. You didn't even... Uh, uh, you know, like, maybe he's a very difficult person. No, he didn't know. It didn't matter. He said, uh, I will follow you wherever you go. Because people believe in this commitment, you know, on one hand you can say, wow, what a person of commitment, you know, I wish it's exactly like a man goes with a woman and he says, I will love you for the rest of my life. Let's get married, you know, I'll be committed to you. Wow, wonderful, you know, people don't have the balls to do such a commitment. So this is a man who commits, he sells his soul to Jesus. But Jesus knows, you know, you're talking out of ignorance. This is just a form of, uh, you know, like some people say, and it's their ego, it's their persona, it's their mask, it's their personality. Some people say, Swamiji, I'm a very reliable person. If I said I will do this in three years from now, in three years from now, I will do it. That's just a person who brags about the fact that he holds his word. 
It's a form of ego. That person simply says, you know, I always hold my ego. And here, my word. And here is an example. I'm promising to you that for the next three years I'll do this and I will do it. It's very beautiful from the standpoint of willpower, self-discipline and tapasya. But you should not brag about it. You should do it without trumpeting. Without blowing the trumpet. You should actually let me say, wow, three years ago you said that for the next three years you'll do it, and now I'm looking at you and I'm congratulating you. You've really done it. I never thought somebody can do this. Like, let me praise you. Don't you say it. Because when you say it, it's a form of announcing a form of your ego. It's just a form of the ego which says you know how much willpower and you know how much I am a man of my word. I will do this and this guy says I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus gives him an answer on Anahata and higher, not on Manipura and this. Jesus gives him an answer of total detachment because Jesus basically tells him I'm spirit, I'm God. I don't belong to this world, this world belongs to me and I'm so much beyond it that whatever you promise in this world has no meaning, it's not binding in any way. He says it in a beautiful way. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man can rely that you will find the fox in its, in its lair. You can rely on the fact that the bird will still be doing its nest. But Jesus, what if Jesus turns 180 degrees and does something very crazy, which was going to happen. Now he was glorious and in a few days or weeks he became the public enemy number one. People in the market, in the Agora, they said, give us Barabbas. Fuck Jesus, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. No, people, the Jewish people who knew him and who a week before, they received him like a king in Jerusalem. They received him with fig tree leaves or whatever. You know, And they said, oh, son of David, Hosanna, Hosanna. Well, you know, like they were in a delirium, in a mystic delirium. And one week later, when they were asked to choose between Barabbas, a common criminal, a murderer, and Jesus, they chose Barabbas, the same people from Jerusalem. Because meanwhile, Jesus had been beaten, mocked, tortured, crucified, and then they said, we, not yet crucified, of course, and then they said, this cannot be our king. We want a man with Manipura. We want Barabbas is a real man. This hippie, you know, he didn't even put up a fight to defend himself or something. So, Jesus says, you know, you rely on the fact that you know me. Oh, we've seen you, we've heard about you, and therefore I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus says, you don't know me. I am impredictable like the wind. You don't know what I say next. No? People try to look in this Agama scandal. How many things have I been accused of, Colata? I didn't read. I never read this, all this crap. You know, I didn't read not even 10% of what was published about me. But some uh, people tell me, you know, you know, somebody wrote something about you like this and like that, you know. And I heard so many accusations that I am sadistic against animals. 
and that I have been seen torturing animals, like behaving rudely to animals, uh, that uh, uh, I must have said in a lecture that African people and therefore black people are inferior to white people because in Africa there has been no major metaphysical tradition and no major enlightenment lineage and so on. That this, that that, and so on, quoting me, quoting words from Buddha and Confucius about men and women and so on, and therefore I'm supposed to be some misogynist or uh, sexist or something. All the stuff has been said there, you know? And nobody, people ask themselves if it could be true, I would not be in Kopangan. Like, obviously, those of you who are in Kopangan believe that I have never said or done those things. Because it's like, you know, what if I'm not the way you think I am? What if I'm not a fox and you will not find me in my lair when you will search for me? Therefore, Jesus is warning him. He says, you don't even know who I am and what I stand for. What if I stand for Races. I actually believe that the races are very different from each other and so on. Not me, Jesus. Then will you still follow me wherever I go? Or suddenly you will say, ah, oh no, I didn't think it was going that far. Oh shit, you know, I, I, I was a bit hasty. No? Like, do you know who I am? So Jesus says, look, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, which means for me there is nothing stable in this world. I have been around for 33 years and I don't have a house of my own, a family. My mother came to speak with me and I said, this is my mother and my brothers. Like he basically ignored his family when his family wanted to see him and he said, it's not the family which matters, it's this. And therefore, he says, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like nothing, you know, I'm spirit. I don't have karma. I don't have dharma. Because I'm God. I am the dharma. I am the cosmic consciousness. And I'm free like the wind. And you say you will follow me wherever I go. But you know that we have been told that the cosmic consciousness about 4,000 years ago, went angry at the homosexuals and other sexual perverts from Sodoma and Gomorrah. No? Can you today say, well, if Jesus is coming tomorrow, that would be great, by the way. But if Jesus is, for me, from my standpoint, that's what I feel. No? If Jesus is coming tomorrow, what will happen with all the rainbow communities in San Francisco? Will Jesus embrace them? Or will he trump a Tandava dance on their head? You know? What will happen? Nobody can truly answer. We want to believe that Jesus is going to behave nice because we live in a no Manipura society where even when you watch a movie like 24 or something, they say viewer discretion is advised. You know, Like some old ladies might get a heart attack because this movie is a little bit Manipuristic and they follow some images which may disturb your peace of mind, no? But what if Jesus is coming and is disturbing 99% of the people's peace of mind big time? 
and he is not in a tolerant mode. He says, I've been tolerant until 2019, and suddenly in 2019, I put my foot down and I said, now, let's see what the accounts look like. And then suddenly it's like, oops, you know, how many people profess today that they love Jesus? And if somebody would assure them Jesus is actually going to punish all the sexual perversions and all this, then people will say, okay, then I'm not a Christian anymore. I prefer to go to hell. You know, it's like, rah, 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 rah. this kind, because it's all about their ego. It's all about what they believe and they have to hear what makes them happy. And if the religion happens to go against them, then fuck the religion. You know, the religion is not good enough. It has to tell me what I think is right. And Jesus constantly tells the people, you are not right. You think the way people think. No? It's like there is God may think in a different way. No? Today, I, we even had a pupil in Denmark, the Danish society, very Scandinavian type of society and so on. Uh, he did six months, one year of yoga, and then they were having some uh, debate in the class, high school. You know, he was not even in the university. He was finishing high school, if I remember correctly. And uh, they asked him, what is the greatest value in the society of the earth today? He was the only one who did not want to say democracy. Because he had done yoga for one year and he did not believe in democracy because I don't believe in democracy and I have taught him not to believe in democracy. All his colleagues from high school, they were ready to impeach him. He said, no, for me the highest value is tolerance. Tolerance, like I can tolerate, I can tolerate any religion any race, any creed, any sexes, more non-sexes, more... I can be tolerant. I can have love in my heart for everybody. But democracy is not the right thing. Because you cannot have ten people, and two out of those people are Albert Einstein and uh, Rumi. And those ten people vote, and Albert Einstein and Rumi have to do what the other eight idiots voted. Simply not correct. You tell, you take, in my opinion, you take Albert Einstein or Rumi, preferably Rumi because he is divine, and you tell him you are our king, dictate what we shall do. Not constitutional king who is just a painting on the wall. Real king like Henry II, you know, like the big kings like Charlemagne, absolute king. You are our king, say what we should do. And we do. That's what I believe. I know I'm not the same page with most of you. Because most of you want democracy. Because democracy is the place where all the things, you know, if everybody is smoking, it's smoking. Now so many people have smoked marijuana in the United States that in a totally tongue-in-cheek way, in a lying way, it's promoted, it's legalized. Slowly, slowly. It's medical. Medical. No, 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 no. It's not for fun. It's medical because some people have pain in their shoulders. Everybody knows that it's a lie and that it is legalized 
in a way, they, why they haven't they been brave and they said, you know what, we are a decadent society, all the hippies have smoked marijuana for 50 years, marijuana is freely available on all the roads, there is no high school student who did not try marijuana a hundred times and so on. We are all a society addicted to marijuana and therefore let's legalize it because we are drooling for it. Uh, give me some, give me a joint, have you got a joint? I can, you know, like, that's the truth. No, we are addicted to marijuana, not that it's medically useful. No, because it's not. It, everybody knows it's a lie. No, so in the same way, this is democracy. You know, that if eight people out of ten smoke marijuana, it becomes legally available. But it's not good. Same is with tobacco. Then why do, did we allow tobacco to be? You know, because tobacco was called, when they brought it from South America, the Catholics, in their simplicity, you know what tobacco was called? It was called the devil's grass. Because people who smoked nicotine, they had effects like they were possessed by demons. Their body had spasms and stuff, and they were behaving like they were possessed by the devil. That's why tobacco was called the devil's grass. Now everybody smokes it. And we are proud that we put some photos with damaged gums, where we say, ah, smoking can kill you. It's still a super industry. It sells a lot. The percentage of the population which smokes, why did we allow it from the first? It was not in Europe. It was not a European thing. Why didn't people put the foot down and said, this grass will never get into Europe? We received a few samples from South America. We tried it for 10 years. It's shit. Send it back to South America and let them die with it there, no? Let them, nobody should ever plant this plant in Europe. No, it was accepted, you know? This is why I say, no, if Jesus would have been there, he would have said, don't do that. Nobody does that. No? But religion and other people, they didn't have the power to say, this is the devil's grass. Avoid it like you avoid the devil. No? This is, so that's why I, I can't believe in democracy and things like that. But, you know, and maybe people know I don't believe in democracy. They don't come to the next satsang next week. Hey, Swami is just a sort of a right-wing chauvinist, ultra-conservative, uh, he believes in authority and things like this. And, you, know, you don't know, I, you know, you don't know where I am, where the wind is blowing. I'm not a fox that can be found in its lair or a bird that can be found in its nest. I have some revelations of my mind which are inspired by the things which I've experienced. Most of you have not experienced those things and you don't have a clue about where my mind has been. And therefore you don't even know what I stand for. And then people publish some recording of a lecture and they say, of mine who are great spiritual teachers and they said we also listened to that recording you actually didn't say anything wrong in that recording you said everything according to the tradition yeah but the hippies didn't uh, subscribe to it and therefore they thought that i was doing something very then they don't follow me anymore no? there are people who did guru puja with me two years ago one of my biggest mistakes in my life that I allowed them to do that, you know, and they said, Swamiji, you are my guru, you know, and then those people six months later, they were fucking me in the ass. 
my mistake. I'm the idiot that I allowed them to do that and so on because they basically soiled their soul. They took a vow which then they broke violently. Will that do me any harm? No. I'm actually a martyr because they did that to me. But it would do a lot of harm to them. And it was my mistake that I allowed them to be, uh, uh, I will follow you wherever you go, like a chill out, sit down, talk to you in two years. You know, it's like, I like your enthusiasm, and I would prefer to see that enthusiasm materializing in deeds rather than to hear some big, precious statement. And therefore, Jesus says it very beautifully. Says, he answers indirectly. He says, I'm not like the birds and the foxes, you know. I'm impredictable. He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And you don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. What if God tells me, stand up against this or that? And he says, Swamiji, I didn't expect that from you. start with it, the next satsang. He said to another man, another man, so there are others, it's basically probably happening in the same day or something, and Jesus again is showing how different he is. And he said to another man, follow me. This guy said, I will follow you everywhere. And he said, you don't know what you're talking about. He didn't say, don't come. But he said, probably in six months I won't see you around. You know, it's like, sure. Let's see. Now, any tree is known by the fruits. Let's see the fruits of the tree. And he said then to another man, follow me. Which is like, whoa, Jesus comes to you, sees you and says, follow me. Most people, if they believe in Jesus, they'll say, whoa, you know, like that's an honor. You know, like he said, follow me only to Peter and... To John and to this, you know, it's like, the honor is too great, sir. You know, it's like, so he said, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. We don't know if his father was dead, but we presume, because he didn't say, I'll wait until my father will be dead. I'll bury him because close down the business in the family, and then come and follow you. We presume that maybe the father was already dead. So he said, uh, first let me go and bury my like, you know, 48 hours I'll be with you. It's as simple as that. But Jesus doesn't use because Jesus is not in a hurry. It's not about this. Jesus uh, wants to make a point in terms of the spirit. Like what's your spirit about these issues? And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So of course, if you follow me, you are going to become one of the apostles. Here, Jesus is purely Ajna Chakra. Sometimes people say, Swami, you have been in 
because some people suffered. Here is a simple example from Jesus. There is a man and his father is dead. And so here there are like some little flowers, short things. One of them was the son of man is impredictable. And then he tells to another man, follow me. And the man replied, and you can think, did Jesus produce some suffering in this person or in another one indirectly? Jesus says, don't even go to bury your father. Your family can do it. You are not needed to bury your father. It's more urgent that you come with me and you preach the kingdom of God. That's the biggest emergency for Shambhala. Shambhala doesn't care if you bury your father or if your family buries. Your father will not stay unburied because you're not the only person on the face of the earth. If nobody from the family is there, do you think the villagers will let him stink and rot in the house? Even the neighbors will come and take me and say, come on, let's bury Walter, his idiotic son, left with Jesus and left him to royal. Okay, somebody will bury your father. It doesn't, it's just a convention. You're just following a convention. But then try to think, if this guy, he had a mother, and the mother was alive, the wife, and the mother was saying, uh, Walter died, and my son is going to help me with the funeral. And then she hears, your son left with Jesus. When your father is still cold in the house, you know? Like, did she suffer? Do you think she would suffer? I knew a yoga guru. He knew a couple of girls who were twin sisters. And these twin sisters were having not so much Manipura. And they were very dependent on the family. This was happening in Romania. And, uh, you know, it was tight Latin connections with the family. It's not like in England or in Germany or this. The family is really, really tightly connected in Eastern Europe, especially in a Latin country. And, uh, you know, whatever is do, you have to do things with the family, for the family. And the family tells you what university you should study and with whom you should get married. Not 100%, but they poke their nose into everything you do in your daily life. You know, so it's it's a different kind of environment than oh, I am a Danish, and I'm when I was 16 years old, I told my family fuck off, and I went to live alone, and ever since I never spoke with them. I don't know what my family is doing or something. So these girls were really connected with their family, and they have been raised by their grandmother. The parents had one of the grandmothers alive, and she was the one who was cooking food. Uh, you know, sewing their dresses, doing everything. You know, she was the universal nanny. And when they were 22 years old or something like this, the old grandma passed away. This was happening in a city 300 kilometers away. Like to go to that city, it took four hours. They went to the, their guru and they said, what should we do? And the guru said, you don't go to the funeral. family suffered. Everybody accused them that they were in a brainwashing cult and that they were, you know, their father and mother said, we hate you. You are not our daughters anymore. How can you do such an awful thing, you know? And for what? You know, like they didn't even have anything in particular to do except attend some yogic activities, you know, but they were minor. Minor. It's exactly like somebody will say, Swamiji, uh, my mother, my grandma has died. I'm not coming next week to the satsang. I'll be back in two weeks, but next week I'll have to miss the satsang. And I will tell you, don't go. 
stay with Jesus, stay with me. Not that I am Jesus, but stay with Jesus indirectly, you know, and stay here, stay with the Spirit. No, look at Jesus, what an Ajna Chakra he has. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. Like your father goes to hell, your mother goes to hell, all these Jewish citizens there, they know nothing, they are doing nothing. I'm training you to become my apostle. And can you compare that with burying your dead? Fuck your dead and fuck all the conventions and all this that people say, oh, but he must be present at the funeral. No, he must not. It's just hypocrisy. It's just a Vadistanistic thing. So every time when you fight against these Vadistanistic conventions and all these Muladharas, Vadistana, social rules and so on, people are petrified and people suffer. We don't know, it doesn't say if this guy followed Jesus. But if he followed Jesus, did his family suffer? Do you think that he had pangs of guilt? And he said, I really don't know. Yeah, I followed Jesus and so on. But sometimes I stop and ask if it was not too much. Like, what would it have been if I would have been there another 24 hours? And then I ran quickly, quickly. I could follow Jesus because it's a hundred thousand people a thousand people walking with him and I will catch them you know I can walk fast fast for two days and I'll catch them and I'll catch them even before they get to Jerusalem you know so what's what's the such a big haste why such a big haste I can you know people will try to make a compromise but Jesus is actually asking him something like testing him Jesus wants to see if he can think like him and he says let the dead bury their own dead like your mother who is burying your father, she's dead from the standpoint of the soul. She's not an awakened soul. She's numbers. Like isn't Jesus loving everybody? Yes, very much. He died for them. But this doesn't prevent him from seeing clearly that they are dead. No? That people are numbers. How many of the people who lived at the time of Jesus became enlightened or went with God? insignificant numbers 99.99 they were part of the crowd they were cannon fodder and do you think that Jesus doesn't know that like Jesus is a sort of a hippie who wants to think positively all the time oh yeah but you cannot speak like this about people no that Jesus can <clears throat> he says let the dead bury their dead the village is made of dead people and from time to time, some of them dies actually. Let the dead bury their dead. It's their little cup of tea. These people live a life in a world in which they are surrounded by fear of death, superstition, pain, this, that. If you want ever to come back to your village and to put an end to this miserable state of things, come with me now. You know, like let the dead bury your dead and be separate. Grow up. Become a king, a spiritual king, become aristocratic, become a prince. And then in 20 years, like Peter or somebody, you can turn back and then you will not be little Walter who didn't bury his dad. Like Buddha, he hurt his wife, he hurt his kid, he hurt his parents. And he went in the forest and reached enlightenment and came back like the lion.
you know, roaring like a lion, like now I'm Buddha, now I can tell you what I have discovered, you know, for that price. So look at Jesus, that Jesus is not at all afraid of pain. You know, people say, yeah, but sometimes when people do yoga or tantra, they experience pain. Yes, that's guaranteed, I promise it to all of you. No, of course you will have pain, because you grow up. It's like a wheat which sprouts. The wheat germ has to die so that the wheat plant can grow out of it. Your ego and your limitations have to die so that the Buddha will grow out of your flesh and blood. And that hurts. And Jesus is not afraid of it. He says, let the dead, like that's the world of Vadistana from where you come and I'm trying to extract you from that world. And this extraction can sometimes be painful. I am coming from a functional family with parents loving and devoted. You don't know what a tragedy it was for my family and parents when I started doing yoga. All the forms of scandal and pain, I've had them. You know, my parents proclaimed me the ultimate bastard in this world. That how comes that I don't care about their heart when they gave their blood and saliva to make me a grown-up human being? How come that they, my mother is going to have a heart attack? My mother is, my father is going to have two heart attacks. I know, like everything is going on my shoulders because I'm such a bastard that I'm vegetarian and standing on my head and doing yoga and so on. You know, my family accused me of all the monstrosities in the world in full seriousness while they were crying. Like they were in pain and agony. And I was sitting there and looking at the pain of my own parents and could do nothing about it. Because the only choice was for me to give up my aspiration. And I could not give up my aspiration. Not for my life. And therefore I had to go through it and so on. And then I understood perfectly what Jesus said. Let the dead bury their dead. No. What were they going to do? What, what will the father of this guy and the village do for this guy when he himself will be old and sick? Uh, you know, we are all human beings. Yeah, but then 30 years ago I shouldn't have chosen to stay with you in the village. I should have chosen to follow Jesus. Because then at least I had a chance to reach something else. To be victorious. To have a victor like this, I'm just, you know, when I'm becoming agonizing, you say, hey, welcome to the club, we are all human beings, you know. Okay, next time I'll choose Jesus. It's good to know. No? So, maybe this man followed Jesus, and maybe in a previous life he had the same test, and he failed it. And his subconscious mind told him, don't fuck up the second time. Go, go go. Yeah, but my mom, my dad, the village, the people, the, you know, like, fuck the village and the people. Go with Jesus is a million times more important than the village and the people. That's the truth which nobody wants to say. And it's again, not because Jesus does not have compassion. Jesus, precisely because of compassion, wants to take this man 
and make him into an enlightened man who then can come back to the village and help them more than if he stayed in the village like an ignorant person and said, no, I couldn't really go with Jesus. I had to help you guys. Yeah, you help us three units, and if you would have become a Buddha, you would have come back 20 years later and you would have helped us three million units. But people don't believe in this investment, that you have to invest something so that you develop spiritually, so that you grow up spiritually. We'll start from this next time when I continue with these radical teachings, this time a very Ajna Chakra, kind of sharp, discriminative teaching of Jesus. Thank you all for listening tonight to all these various things. With this we have finished. I'll see you in the other activities here in Iran.